hey, we want to make keeping reptiles and amphibians easy for people, and we're going to live and die by that. Like if that business model is not effective, then Josh's Frogs is going to go out of business, but we're going to go out of business trying to do the mission that we set out to do. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up. Who knows what number it is anymore? I think we're in the 80s now. What do you think? It's been like... I literally haven't even thought about it in weeks, so <laughs> this is when... <laughs> PortCityPythons.com. PortCityPythons, we do have some t-shirts available. We do have some animals available. And then as well as we have some of our Gaps Eco coconut fiber bedding available. Other than that, what else do we have? Amazon links are going to be down below in the description of this podcast. And all you do is click on the links and shop like you normally would. And we get a little kickback from the podcast. Yeah, and this is in the future, but November 10th. Okay, yeah, November 10th, we will be at the Oaks Show in Oaks, Pennsylvania. I guess it's called the Reptile Super Show in Oaks, Pennsylvania. So if you want to come Not say just hi. Be there, we'll also, be we're going to be at, well, I'm going to be at Tinley. Is that a sore subject? It's a very sore subject. Oh, okay. So I'll be at Tinley. You can catch Melissa uh, at home watching The Bachelor in Paradise. So. No. <laughs> oh gosh, don't lie uh, I'll be watching all the shows you hate but I wish I was at Tinley but yeah. so if you find Joe I don't know hit him <laughs> what? don't do that so speaking and Dan asks if the Oak show is worth the drive I'm gonna no. I mean I should be biased <laughs> we're and say yes because we're gonna be there but no it's probably it's not, not worth. if you Just live over an hour place. away it is not worth your drive no no it's mostly uh sketchy animals except for us <laughs> yeah okay, this is a really right long intro room. oh my god yeah why are we rambling so today we have on <laughs> josh willard of josh's frogs if you guys live under a rock or something josh obviously owns josh's frogs <laughs> and he basically went from breeding fruit flies to you know having this giant business so Josh, first of all, thanks for being here and kind of give us a little bit of the origin of how you got into amphibians and the reptile world and all the things that you're involved in now. I don't know if I can make it a little bit. It's a pretty long story, but the the long and short of it is that I grew up in Jackson, Michigan, uh, tons of swamps and uh, woods around in that area, around our house. And my mom just believed that little boys should be outside playing in the dirt, catching animals. So uh, we would catch garter snakes, uh, frogs, uh, toads, uh, snapping turtles, um, anything that we could get our hands on. And our mom, the rule always was, you could keep anything for one night, but the next day you had to take it back to the swamp and let it go. So um, just grew up doing that um, as a little kid. And then um, into high school, started keeping some of the more exotic stuff. Um, I kept map turtles, I kept newts, I kept um, ball pythons and red tails and um, just, you know, the, the, the typical teenage uh, reptile keeper, uh, just a, a menagerie of, of all kinds of different reptiles and stuff. So it started with that, uh, went off to college, I uh, had to get rid of everything for that. Um, and then it wasn't until um, I got out of college and got established that I, I started keeping animals again. So 
that's really how my love of reptiles happened. Um, as far as the business goes, it was, it was totally all by accident. Um, got out of college. I wasn't making very much money. My wife wasn't making very much money. We didn't have money to spend on um, any hobbies. Uh, so I ended up doing some research, found uh, poison dart frogs and wanted to keep a tank of those in our living room and uh, talked my wife into uh, buying a bunch of of the cups that you use for fruit flies um, and storing those in our apartment uh, bedroom and oh. <laughs> extra ones to uh, pay for my hobby. So I was able to sell her on the fact that these frogs won't cost us nothing. I can sell these extra cups to, to cover the cost. And so uh, that's how Josh's frog started. So that's wild. So at the time, was there, you know, readily available? Were there people breeding fruit flies at the time? Yeah, there were um, like on a, like a scientific uh, type scale. Um, there were a few biological houses that did it. And then there were a few, probably half dozen places online that you could go and buy um, fruit flies. But um, there were a couple of problems at that time. Um, you know, the, the media smelled like uh, raw sewage. And so you had people keeping a tank of frogs in their living room with a, a cup of just rotting uh, nastiness that just made their whole house stink. Um, and then there was the issue of just cost that, you know, that fruit flies, because when you start a culture, it doesn't produce flies for a couple of weeks. And so, um, when you're in a pinch, you need flies right away. You need them two weeks ago. Um, and so the, the price of flies is just astronomical. So that's how I kind of started after the, the cops, uh, moved into selling, you know, the media and the, um, and the um, actual cultures. And um, through experimentation, I was a science major, um, set up all these experiments trying to make media not smell like sewage, and um, was able to land on something that kind of smells like baking bread. Um, and so it was a huge success and, and kind of catapulted it from, hey, it's a hobby that pays for itself to it's a hobby that, that actually brings in a little bit extra income. So where was kind of the moment where you realized like, there's a business here. What was kind of the steps from just fruit flies to moving on to all the things that you do now? Well, um, when I started um, with the uh, cups, that quickly turned, uh, quickly took off. It was kind of just happenstance. I actually, we were within 45 minutes of the manufacturer of those cups. And so it was just by chance that we happened to be live right next to those um, where they're made. And so I was able to get them in at a cheap price. So it was kind of as an accident. It wasn't something I was planning on doing at all. Um, and then once um, I started messing around with the fruit fly media, just, you know, for my wife's sake, um, I got to the point where I thought like, hey, man, this is kind of like a cool little side hobby. And so I did that um, for about two years. And then um, I was getting my master's in counseling at the time, and I had to do an internship. And a week before the internship started, um, the facility that I was going to go to lost their funding. So with a week to go, they said, hey, we don't have a spot for you, um, sorry. And the school was not willing to work with me and try to find another spot. So I had a year with no job because I uh, resigned from my current position. So I had a year with no job and I asked my wife, I said, hey, can I just make a, a run at this? Let's see see where this goes. And uh, thankfully she was willing to take a chance on me. And so um, that was uh, 2007, I decided, hey, I'm gonna try to, try to make a go at this. Um, Finished my, the next year, did my internship while running uh, Josh's Frogs and finished that. Um, they offered me a job and I went to my wife again. I said, hey, hon, let's let's not take the first sure thing. What do you think about taking a flyer on this? See how it goes. Um, we just had a baby earlier that year first and she said, all right, sure, let's try it. And then uh, the rest is history. We just uh, continued to grow year after year 
um, after that. So it was, it was all kind of like accident, I would say. Um, not something that I had planned a long time to, to do. It just um, something that just kind of evolved kind of naturally. That seems like a big ass to be like, hey, I'm going, I have this seemingly lucrative to most people career, but uh, let me do this whole fruit fly in a cup thing. <laughs> That's, that seems very far-fetched of an idea. So where do you go from fruit flies? Were you vending shows? Were you selling them online? Where were you selling them? Well, I um I was selling them online, and at, at that time there was no uh, Facebook. I'm kind of dating myself, but there was there was no nothing like social media. It was all forums. Um, so I was selling through those, and then I had uh, my website. If you go back on the uh, what is it called, the Wayback Machine, and look at the early sites and in, in 2004, 2005, it's it's nasty. It is <laughs> nasty. Um, so sold some that way, and then I started doing some shows. Um, but personality wise, like I'm a big introvert, the whole idea of, you know, being at a show and, and hanging out with people all day on a Saturday just was not a good fit for me. And um, kind of luckily ran into um, uh, somebody by the name of Zach uh, Brinks, who's been with me since 07, um, who really thrives on that uh, relationship aspect of the, uh, of the hobby. And so um, was able to um, bring him on board and um, he did it. He started doing a lot of the shows and um you know allowed me to work on some of the other stuff um and so that's that's really how we um ended up growing um from there we did we were doing shows every single weekend all year round traveling around just trying to get our uh our name out there and uh, um you know a lot um you know a lot of luck along the way and the whole time did that about that same time when you were doing shows every weekend were you breeding frogs at the same time yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, about the time I brought in uh, um, Zach, we were breeding frogs, uh, fruit flies, a few other uh, little insects, and we we're just starting to get into the um, uh, broader like reptile supply type stuff. So we were just starting to uh, get our feet wet in that and uh, brought him in uh, um, in 2007 when he um, started working for me. Um, we were still working out of the basement of my house. Um, and it wasn't until 2008 that we actually moved the business outside of uh, you know, my house at, at that time in, in 2008, when we moved out, um, I kicked my wife out of the garage. So she was parking in the driveway and I was using the garage, um, in our entire basement to run Josh's frog. So, um, it was two of the largest U-Hauls and four trucks and three trailers, um, making two trips to get everything out of my, uh, basement wow. and garage. So <laughs> we moved all that, uh, it just, crazy you know how much how much stuff we had had uh, brought down our basement steps um and then had to take back out so um yeah that's we that's wild so at the time i mean was there was bioactive vivariums a thing like how did you kind of get into the bioactive aspect of it or is that kind of something you have to do with dark frogs exactly um it, it's kind of interesting where the entire reptile hobby um is headed uh Back um, a lot of um, 80s, um, a lot of the fish people were into frogs. So there's kind of that um, that basic framework of like, hey, we're trying to create some kind of ecosystem. There's more at play than just dumping food in for the frogs to eat. There, there's more that has to be at play in this environment. And so a lot of that fish hobby type stuff um, led to um, some changes in the way that people were keeping poison dart frogs um, up and through the, the 90s. And so the, the, the bioactive um, movement um, really started with poison dart frogs. Um, and so by the time I jumped on the scene in, in the year two, 2004, um, 
you know, that was already in full swing. Like that, that, that anybody who was trying to keep poison dart frogs not bioactively was just not having success. The animals just were not thriving, um, or let alone uh, surviving. So um, it, was, it was really, you know, it was the state of the hobby at that time. So it's been kind of interesting to see um, that coming um, full circle around the, the rest of the reptile industry and that that's the, the movement that we're going to from uh, sterile enclosures to something that's a little bit more um, bioactive. But um, it's, it's just really cool. Like, I don't want to get too, too off on a tangent, but um, yeah, and the, the, the way that in which we um, are even doing bioactive now is not really... Um, you know, the full picture, uh, some of the stuff that we're learning from the plant industry, mainly the cannabis industry, that, you know, we're growing stuff in, in sterile potting soil. There's a lot going on in a microscopic level in that soil that um, is part of that whole ecosystem. And so there's a lot of cool new um, stuff coming on the market in the plant industry that, that's going to be end up making its way into the reptile industry just, you know, on a, on a bacterial fungal type uh, level to, to build that, that system that's uh, going to utilize that waste from those animals, um, from dead insects, all that dying plant leaves, anything like that, um, turn that into it's, a, its own little ecosystem. So I think poison dart frogs is a little bit ahead of the rest of the um, reptile industry as far as bioactive, but there's just so much we're learning. Um, the science behind bioactive is just, um, just really beginning. And um, thankfully, the cannabis industry is going to fund a lot of that research for us in the reptile industry uh, to figure out what, what exactly are the, the things at play um, that are going to make that ecosystem uh, self-sustaining. Yeah, that seems like we can't go a podcast without it coming up. The fact that people are having a negative attitude towards uh, tubs and sterile enclosures now and are slowly going to whether it's naturalistic or bioactive to a certain degree. I guess one thing of a concern is that our snakes pretty much produce too much waste to keep properly in a bioactive or our plants are, you know, they would rip out the plants immediately. So do you see that changing or there's going to be some type of workaround that makes it more suitable for uh, like our snake species? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, you know, like I've kept snakes before. I understand the waste problem with snakes and how you do that in a, a bioactive enclosure. Um, and I think that in those situations, there will have to be some input um, from us as keepers, whether whether that's spot cleaning or whether that's from working with uh, some of the stuff that we're finding now in the industry as far as um, either insects or at a microscopic level of stuff that's going to utilize um, that waste. But I, I do see like in the what I what we like to call the soccer mom houses where they have one kid with one ball python. I think that we'll see in the future. Uh, the case where most of those ball pythons are all kept um, naturalistically. Um, and then we'll see more of the hobby type, um, you know, the people, the collector type people that are going to keep um, a half dozen to a dozen snakes or more. Um, we'll, we'll utilize the tub system, but we'll probably end up utilizing some of the aspects of bioactive as part of their um, enclosure, whether that's from, you know, the use of plants and creating humidity inside the side of those tubs to, to help with shedding issues. I just think we're going to see a lot more of that natural stuff uh, making its way into um, our hobby just because of the benefits to the animal and then ease for the person uh, taking care of the, um, the animals. Yeah, I think that we got a clear uh, misunderstanding as far as we have these commercial setups with a lot of animals, people breeding a lot of animals in tubs. But if you have one pet, I don't see why you have to keep them in a tub. I mean, you can do the extra work to keep it in a naturalistic enclosure. And I'm a hypocrite because I do have some snakes and tubs and stuff. So keep that in mind. Yeah, but we don't have one. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> 
Right. Exactly. But it's, it's hard to say that people should do that and then I don't do it myself. And especially with, I don't know if you see this, but especially on YouTube, because, you know, your audience is a bit younger. Audience on YouTube, the younger people coming up seem to really dislike the sterile enclosures and stuff like that. And they'll point that stuff out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a part of a, a larger um, mindset of uh, people that are younger that. Um, you know, I think I think there's just push back to, to nature, whether they're responding back to our use of technology or whatnot. But um, just definitely, we, we see that a, a push to, to a more naturalistic uh, type environment for their um, animals. And I think, you know, when you talk, uh, you know, decades past, I mean, it was all artificial uh, plants and stuff like that, that, you know, still when you we look at um, normal reptile sales, the, the amount of fake plants that are sold is just astronomical. Um, and when you think of, you know, what, what actual use are they doing inside of a terrarium? Not a lot. But still, that that drive to have something that that is natural um, inside of our homes that I think drives people to to create something, whether they're going to go to the work of trying to figure out how to do that, let's say, or whether they're going to make it look naturalistic. Now, if say a snake keeper was trying to get into bioactive, and say you want to begin with an amphibian species, a frog species, what what would be a good start to kind of you know get your, your toes in? There you go. <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of really easy to keep uh, frogs. Um, one of the ones that we recommend that a lot of people start with um, are Pac-Man frogs, especially if you're coming from the uh, the reptile industry, whether that's snakes or lizards or whatnot. There tends to be a lot of crossover with those guys. Um, for instance, they don't tend to eat on a regular basis. Uh, they're more of a um, feast and famine type uh, frog where they're going to eat when food's plentiful, but then they can go a long time without eating. Um, they tend to be a little bit uh, more sedentary, and so they don't um, need that large of a cage um, or as much uh, input from the uh, keeper. So we usually recommend that people get started um, with those. It's just a little bit easier if you're looking for something that, that has a lot of crossover to um, reptiles. And then um, after that, um, the uh, the species that uh, t tend to um, be common in the pet trade, um, whether that's red eyes or white tree frogs, um, usually end up being people's next choices. Um, but we usually find that um, there are other species that are a little bit more um, active during the day um, and, and create a, a little bit better um, experience for the keeper, whether that's um, milk frogs or climbing toads or something like that that's just going to be moving around uh, during the day, tend to be uh, better captives than um, some of the other commonly kept uh, tree frogs. They're just not as active during the day. And now, are these commonly kept because are they commonly imported? Are they commonly bred? Is amphibians, are they as prevalent as far as captive breeding goes to our snakes and lizards? Um, in the, if, if I was to compare the snake industry um, to the frog industry, I, I'd say that there's much more of a reliance on uh, wild-caught uh, frogs in the um the pet trade. Um, some of the numbers on red-eyed tree frogs are just staggering. You're talking tens of thousands of red eyes are brought in every single year. Um, they can be uh, bred in captivity, and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of us working at that goal. But the uh, the the scale to do tens of thousands of red eyes just isn't available here in the United States um, right now. Um, something that we're working with, as well as other breeders are working with, um, there just isn't a reason. They're 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 fairly easy to breed, and there isn't a reason for us to, to have to bring in those kind of numbers um, in from the wild. But I mean, when it comes to frogs, um, you know, it tends to be a lot more work um, than than other breeding other animals. And so I think, um, as a whole industry, we've kind of shied away from that. It's just um, it's been easier 
um, and more convenient to bring in wild caughts um, as opposed to breeding frogs. And you have that extra tadpole stage that you have to care for animals. And so you know, to give you an example on a poison dart frog, um, from laying an egg to being for sale is about a seven to eight month process. And, uh, you know, in, in other species in, the, in, our, uh, in our hobby, there's just such a, a more shorter, less work to you actually getting sellable animals. And so I think people have shied away from that. Um, but it's something that, you know, being a group of hobbyists, um, we've really taken on as a um, as, a, as a call for, for us to, to impact our hobby in that way and, and providing animals that are captive bred. And so um, at Joshua's Frogs, we don't sell any um, wild caught animals. So everything that we're um, selling has either been bred by us here or um, we do have a program where we work with other breeders um, to help use our platform um, to offer people captive bred um, frogs. So that statistic you gave us from the red eye imports, is that something that's been consistent over the years? Is that something that's increased, you know, recently? Um, that's been pretty consistent. Um, the only caveat being um, that they, the importers are tending to um, pick different areas of South America to bring in frogs, um, which uh, makes some of us suspect that um, that they might be bringing them in to uh, points where it gets harder and harder to bring in those types of numbers from those areas. So, um, you know, it, it's it's pretty interesting, you know, the different locales of red eyes that we actually have in the hobby just because they've uh, moved around where they're um, collecting and from but um, those numbers can go up and down year after year based on um, availability or based on the fact of what country um, is allowing those to be exported at that time now forgive my ignorance if I have it towards the amphibian stuff but what as far as importing animals in I know chytrid fungus is a big deal so how do you know that you're not spreading that bringing animals in that have it is there a test for it what do you do what are the precautions everything <laughs> <laughs> um that is a huge um issue for us um you know from us as a as a facility standpoint um you know the the um the catastrophe that it could be to, to spread something like that in our uh, collection you know would would instantly put us out of business and so um any frog that's brought into our facility um is put into quarantine um, which is away from um, the rest of our stock of animals. Um, we do um, a quarantine period, um, but we also send off um, uh, samples for checking for chytrid, but also ronavirus as well. And so um, all of uh, all the frogs are tested um, multiple times before they're made into uh, general population. So. And now there's obviously a lot of concerns with those type of the fungus and stuff like that on wild populations. So is when you're getting imports in or you're trying to import export from Europe and stuff like that, I mean, the wild population, is that an issue as far as just these animals in the wild, let alone in captivity? As far as are we seeing chytrid? Yeah, yeah. Well, in wild, just the decrease in population of amphibians across the board. I mean, does that change the way that importation happens and the importance of captive breeding? Um, as a as a policy standpoint, um, it has not yet, um, but we do see that on the horizon. Um, with the uh, they they did a salamander uh, ban on importation. Uh, it was last year. Um, and there was a lot of talk about that happening to all amphibians uh, starting uh, this year. And so uh, we see that probably most likely in some form happening in the future where imports will be uh, shut down 
Um, but but luckily, um, as part of the, um, uh, the we have some experience because of what's happened with the salamanders that we can um, learn from. But um, what we're really hoping um, happens is that um, we can get um, some common sense uh, testing uh, done and, and, and look at uh, limiting the uh, the spread of chytrid using that. Um, you know, we're making sure the stuff that when it comes in is tested, is clean, um, and um, that, that the stuff that is not clean, that, that is actually treated. And so, um, you know, that's our hope that that happens. But whether that happens or not, I would... I wouldn't be surprised if we see some kind of uh, import uh, ban, which, um, you know, for, for us as, a, as, as thinking of a, of a long-term uh, commitment to breeding um, frogs, it does uh, put us in a point where we, we need to be uh, managing um, our genetics in a way that we can do this for decades on because, um, you know, we're, we're really committed to um, helping people connect with nature. Like, I mean, the times that I got to spend at the swamp uh, playing with frogs, like that changed my life. I want that for my kids and my grandkids. And so, um, you know, we really feel like, um, you know, we can be um, stewards of that um, in the way that we do um, breeding, but but also um, advocate for responsible keeping and responsible importing, exporting that whatnot. And are there kind of uh, different species and different things that you work with that either like slip through your fingers because they're hard to breed or that you don't have the gene pool to, to work with and inbreeding is a problem? When it comes to choosing what we're going to breed, um, you know, we have to, um, we have to figure out one, um, is it a good captive? Um, there's a lot of frogs that just need so much space because of uh, the ways in which they move around, uh, namely the way that they jump. They just do not make uh, good captives. Uh, um, I'll probably get a little bit of slack for this, but the common leopard frog, like we should stop keeping those in captivity. They just jump four to six feet at a time. We just, we, we'd have to have giant enclosures to keep them from smashing into the sides. They're just, they're not good captives that way. And there are certain frogs um, that are imported um, from time to time or are worked with in the hobby that just aren't very good captives. They just don't do really well in captivity. And so our first uh, goal is to find species that do really well um, in captivity. And then the second part is, you know, can we keep them I'm sorry. And the, the other part of um, um, Karen um, um, has to do with temperatures. There are quite a few frogs that actually need to be kept below 65 degrees year round. And like for the normal person to do that, even even for us on a facility level, that's hard. But for the normal person to do that, you know, we we want to we want those frogs to have long life. And so some of those frogs are, are, are disallowed for that. The second part is how easy are they to breed? Um, we in the in the frog industry, um, there's a, I wouldn't want to call it a split, but there's some discussion around uh, what role that hormones and uh, uh, chemical breeding um, should play. And so um, we've shied away from that. Um, and we have chosen to do a more natural um, breeding cycle, which has been kind of interesting. Um, it has led us to um, partner with uh, other breeders and, and really address the issues of like, hey, let's work together to figure out how to to breed these guys more naturally um, from working with other breeders on breeding techniques. But then now we've uh, just started a, a group of tadpole, um, or what do we call it, tadpole group that's just talking about different ways that we can keep tadpoles in a way that, that is a little bit more natural, that gives them a, a, a better leg up. I really answered your question. Well, it gave me another question because I have no idea what you're talking about with the hormone breeding yeah, thing. Yeah, I was I, just about to say that chemical breeding. This what sounds are you this sounds really about? sketchy, so you may need to explain <laughs> that. 
Um, there are cues that get frogs ready for uh, breeding. I know in the snake industry that th that tends to be temperature. With frogs, it is temperature to some degree, but a lot of it has to do with uh, barometric pressure changes, um, has to do with food, whether it's plentiful or not as plentiful. Um, and um, when it comes to, um, I would say, more of the scientific community, um, uh, they tend to be a little bit more um, willing and a little bit more, um, I guess the word would be willing to go more of a chemical route. So, so injecting hormones to get the females to, to start developing um, eggs. And so um, that has spilled over into the reptile industry. There, there are um, breeders that will use hormones to um, get the, get the girls to, to drop eggs um, rather than waiting for the right conditions or, or figuring out what those right conditions are. And so um, in the scientific community, um, a lot of that is uh, this frog's gonna go extinct if we don't figure out how to breed it. And this is an easy way to breed it. And, um, you know, and I'm all for making sure that these frogs don't go extinct. But, um, you know, I think in addition to using chemical hormones, we, we, need, we as a hobby need to be working together to figure out what are the ways in which we can provide the, the most natural care for these animals so that um, she's dropping eggs because she's ready to breed and because she's, she's healthy and she's happy. Exactly. I definitely, I understand it in the scientific community, you know, helping endangered species, but I just feel like that's just impatience in the hobby. Like, I don't, I don't see a well, place yeah, imagine for... imagine if ball python breeders got oh a my hold God. of some type of hormone. Be... <laughs> I mean, it's already <laughs> insane. Like, that's, I just think that's impatience. And... I think there's a, there's a different attitude, though, with the frogs. It doesn't seem like there's many people... There's no like big money kind of frogs. I see the most expensive frogs I see seem to be maybe like a couple hundred dollars and that would be a high level frog. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 yeah the, um, the, the morph industry is, is not very large in um, the frog industry. So yeah, the, the few hundred dollar frogs are just based on rarity. They just don't breed that, that uh, frequently. So, um, and then most of the frogs, um, frogs tend to be um, explosive breeders. So they lay a bunch of tadpoles all at once, uh, poison dart frogs being the exception to that, but most frogs lay a bunch of eggs all at once. So it keeps the, the prices reasonable um, and therefore tends to be a great uh, gateway um, animal into the, the hobby. For sure. Now I, I want to talk about more about the conditions of the, because obviously for reptile breeders, that's kind of like these are little aliens compared to what we're used to breeding. So how do you set up the conditions? So let's start with, you know, the bioactive vivarium or what you would do for a dart frog. How would you set that up? Yeah, yeah. Um, the first um, uh, thing I'll talk about is the substrates. Um, you want to layer substrates. So what we all put down on the very bottom is called a false bottom. All it's doing is is raising that substrate off of the bottom of the tank. Um, and that's where when you're watering the tank, all that uh, water will go through the substrate into that false bottom area and then be wicked up to the top. Um, the substrate, we use um, something called ABG. Um, it was designed by the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Um, it's a mix of five different ingredients that uh, just provides an opportunity for water to uh, be held um, close to the plant roots, but doesn't hold too much water that, that just saturates and drowns the roots. So setting that up and then planting live plants in there. Um, the whole point of those live plants is to utilize the waste from the frog. So dead insects, uh, leaves that fall down from the plants, the waste from the frogs, that all gets utilized. Um, as fertilizer for those uh, plants. Uh, and poison dart frogs are leaf litter frogs. They live on the rainforest floor in between layers of uh, leaf litter. So they're in between those uh, layers hunting for bugs and laying eggs and, and spending most of their time in between layers of that um, 
uh, those leaves. And so um, we'll top off the top with the leaves. And then the other part that the, the leaves help with is keeps the frogs from tracking that dirt on the sides of the uh, tank as they crawl around. Um, so, and then the final thing is um, making sure that it, um, poison dart frogs need very, very high humidity, 80 to 100%. So getting rid of any screen top um, and doing a full glass so that you uh, maintain that moisture. Um, the cool thing about uh, frogs is they're diurnal, but um, where they're at in the rainforest, they're not getting a lot of light uh, per se. So they don't need any special UVB bulbs or anything like that. Uh, just normal fluorescent lights for the plants. Um, they're pretty easy uh, to take care of. Um, the one issue um, that we'll have on our end, as opposed to some of the snakes, is that they poison dart frogs can't take very high temperatures. Um, anything into the 80s uh, for any extended period of time is pretty dangerous. So normal room temperature, um, is pretty good for those guys. So now I guess we kind of have to ask because people like all the colorful frogs and we want to put all the colorful frogs together. Do we need to uh, separate species when we're housing our frogs? <laughs> I really wish the answer to this question was, yeah, sure, mix them all together. I really wish that was the case. But unfortunately, they tend to be very, very territorial and they're wanting to take the uh, the best feeding spots and the best breeding spots for themselves. And so they're pretty aggressive. Um, it's pretty amazing to watch um, their videos and pictures online. But these frogs will get each other in headlocks and throw each other around the tank. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, just the their ability to uh, to fight it. It really should be the Teenage Mutant uh, uh, Ninja uh, Poison Dart Frogs as opposed to Turtles. These things, these things are pretty vicious uh, to each other. And, um, you know, they, if you look at some of the, the videos online, you'll even see smaller frogs uh, taking it to a larger frog. It, it's, it's pretty entertaining, but, um, you know, it usually leads to uh, death for, for whoever the, the loser is in that situation. So, um, and that's true of not just, not only just mixing, but uh, can also be true when you're keeping multiple uh, sexes together that the, the males will fight, uh, the females will fight. Um, there are certain species that tend to do a little bit better in groups. Uh, for instance, uh, the leucomelis, the uh, yellow and black frogs, tend to do a lot better in, in a group in that they don't fight. Um, but what happens is the uh, females just get obese because they just eat each other's eggs. So as soon as a female lays eggs, another one comes up and eats them all. And so you'll get these girls that, you know, their bellies are just dragging on the ground because all they're eating is their, their uh, sister's eggs in the tank. And so, so that even that kind of uh, aggression can be stressful on frogs and that, you know, you have a female that's constantly laying eggs and the eggs are disappearing. So she's trying to lay more eggs and that can be stressful. So um, as a, as a rule of thumb, we recommend just keeping uh, pairs in, in tanks. And so in our hobby, most people will set up what we call a rack. So maybe a baker's uh, rack and have uh, nine tanks on that um, and keep a, keep a bunch of different frogs all in one, you know, four foot baker's rack that way. And now, how do you sex these things and can you sex them from like little froglets um you cannot unfortunately um there have been some people that have theorized that they might not have a sex until they're sexually mature that it might be some environmental cues that um would dictate their sex um which does have some anecdotal evidence that like man you cannot tell if it's a male or female male or female and then all of a sudden they're a year old and you're like that's a male and that's a female and you can tell right away um with uh with um poison dart frogs the telltale is that the female's hips are a little bit spread so if you look at her from the top view she looks more like a teardrop whereas the males tend to be more streamlined their hips aren't uh, spread there's also some back arch uh differences between the two um and then some toe pad um, differences. Males tend to have wider uh, toe pads than females. 
Um, but that that teardrop shape um, usually is a dead giveaway that that's that's a girl that her her hips are ready to lay eggs. So are you constantly like I don't know tracking is not the word, but like you know snake if you you're, if you have two snakes in a tub together, which obviously we're not saying you should ever co have snakes, but if you happen to. I would be able to tell the difference between the two pretty easily, but I feel like with the dart frogs, I wouldn't be able to tell, but obviously I don't know anything about them. But how are you, or is it easy to, if you have a bunch in there to be able to track who's who's over time? Um, I, I think I would use the term easy figuratively. Like when you talk about the, the people on staff here that work with uh, dart frogs, I mean, we have 60, 60 years of experience um, now dealing with uh, uh, poison dart frogs, and we still get it wrong. Um, so here at Josh's Frogs, um, we'll uh, mark on tanks um, what we think it is, and then we track that tank uh, to make sure once they've laid, that, okay, yeah, that is a pair. And if they're not laying, we track that as well, um, and, and can uh, we call it shuffling frogs, but shuffle frogs around, you know, these three tanks have not laid. They're all the same species. Let's pull the frogs out, look at them again, and then try to try to rearrange Switch them. them. All up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Whether we got the sexes wrong or whether, you know, what, for whatever reason, those pairs are just not compatible. They're not interested in, in, in breeding. So your ideal breeding would be and keeping situation would be one to one, one male, one female. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of species that um, tend to be groups. Um, for instance, like our Terabellus, uh, the uh, poison dart frog that the natives are actually using um, on their darts. Those guys we keep here in uh, groups. Um, we do some trios every now and then. Um, but you know, if you're you're looking at the the safest bet, um, you know, it's always going to be a pair. So I've looked at, I've Googled like an idiot, like how do breed frogs? And they all lay eggs in different places and do different things. Like how do you, you know set who's up- babies or who? Well, that too, but how do you set up um, the enclosure so that the female can lay eggs where she's supposed to? And then like, do you, where did tap, how do you hatch tadpoles? What, how do you do any of this? <laughs> We're so naive. Uh, well, um, we, the, the people that are uh, doing poison dart frog uh, care, um, it's their full-time job here. Um, so they get really acquainted with the, the tanks and where the frogs are laying. Um, we try to get the frogs to lay um, on a Petri dish underneath a cocoa hut. Um, it tends to be successful very most of the time. But we do have a few tanks where that female is just not interested in that cocoa hut, that Petri dish. So she's laying usually in this corner or she's usually laying on this plant. And so um, the people that are working in those rooms, you know, get acquainted with that, that tank and get to know those frogs um, and can understand like, hey, that's where I normally need to check for eggs. And so with poison dart frogs, um, some of the, they can lay uh, once every week to two weeks uh, during their heavy time. And so um, they've got their head in the tank, um, not only feeding, but checking for eggs on a regular basis. And is that petri dish? Is that filled with water? No, no, no. It's uh, totally dry. So on the forest floor, they're laying in leaf litter. So usually, be a uh, leaf on top of another leaf, and they'll, they'll kind of hide their uh, eggs in there. So what happens is um, the male um, will usually find a good spot to lay the eggs, and he'll start calling like crazy. Um, she'll come over. Um, she'll do, she'll drop the eggs. Um, he'll fertilize them, and then he'll usually come back later and actually urinate on the eggs to uh, keep them wet um, and also to keep them sterile. So um, urine tends to be a little bit, a little bit uh, 
uh, more acidic and, and fights off any bacterial fungal type stuff um, that way. Whoa. Yeah, didn't know that one. So, uh, so now we have process. So now we have a Petri dish filled with pea eggs. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> um, we pull the eggs uh, pretty early. Um, you know, our breeders are, are set up in, in 20 gallon tanks, but in that uh, limited floor space, there's a, a large chance that one of the frogs is just going to trample the, the eggs in that time period. So we like to remove the eggs um, and care for them ourselves. And so we'll uh, move those those uh, um, eggs outside of the tank into our tadpole room um, where we'll wet them um, and keep an eye on them and then remove any eggs that go bad. Um, and they'll take them about two, sometimes three weeks to start hatching. And then once those eggs have hatched, we move them from that Petri dish into um, a 32 ounce cup. Um, with poison dart frogs, they're a little bit different than other tadpoles in that they they can be cannibalistic they'll actually eat their brothers and sisters so each individual tadpole has to be in its individual cup uh, cared for um, individually as opposed to just a mass aquarium uh, that we get to use with a lot of the other um, breeders thankfully you know like our yellow spotted climbing toad she can lay a thousand eggs at a time it's thankfully those aren't a thousand cups we get to, to tank raise those but with poison dart frogs it's individual cups um, and they'll be pet with the poison dart frogs they'll be tadpoles about two and a half to three months um, before they come out of the water wow so what do you feed them when they're tadpoles with uh, um, the tadpoles, luckily the poison dart frogs don't need any live food. Um, it's actually a, um, a pelleted uh, food that's coated um, that, that we feed them. And um, we've been feeding that that for decades. Wow. So, that's crazy. I feel bad that we keep asking poison dart frog questions. Like, that's just the closest frame of reference after frog. Like I know there's a million other frogs, but yeah, I feel yeah. like that's all I keep asking about. Yeah, because I don't really know. I don't know any them. other frogs. <laughs> so sad. Um, but a kind of smart question our friend Evan asked earlier. He said, "How vital are the vitamin supplements?" It is very vital. Um, with any type of animal feeding them um, a, a simple diet of one insect over and over and over again just does not give them the variety of food um, that they're going to need um, and and you know and we don't think about this a lot but in um, in the wild when they're eating these insects they're actually picking up parts of dirt and parts of other stuff that's falling off of the trees they're, they're getting much more than that insect when they're eating and in a um, in captivity those um, environments tend to be a little bit more sterile than that so they're even getting limited that way and so um, it, it, with poison dart frogs are a great example without supplementation um, you can see issues within months of, of them whether it's um, short tongue syndrome, whether that's issues with, uh, with, uh, bone density and, uh, metabolic bone disease. Um, it's, it's within months that you can see that was kind of things. And so supplementing, um, dusting stuff, um, we've been doing that for decades. Um, it's been successful, but, um, you know, like all things, you know, variety is the, not only the spice of life, but it's the, the key to, to um, health and long life. And so figuring out ways in which we can offer other uh, feeder insects besides fruit flies to the, the frogs has, has been beneficial. So first of all, do the vitamins have some type of shelf life? And then also what are the other insects that you can supplement with? 
Yeah. Um, the um, ins the uh, powders, we recommend once you open it that you use it up in six months. Um, it, some of the stuff starts to break down, um, and we, we want them to be as fresh as possible. Um, as far as other insects that can be fed to poison dart frogs, there's actually quite a bit. Um, poison dart frogs um, are specialized hunters. So in the wild, they're eating ants, they're eating poisonous plants. So they have to eat that size food from the time they're a baby to the, when they're a full adult. So most poison dart frogs won't eat anything larger than an eighth of an inch. So you can feed them fruit flies, uh, pinhead crickets. Um, there's bean beetles, which are a weevil. Um, there are um, bugs called springtails. Um, they're a soil arthropod. They live inside the dirt and they're eating mold and fungus. So with poison dart frogs, you usually set up the tank and add springtails to it. So they're, they're living in the dirt already that they'll hunt for. Um, there are rice flower beetles, um, you know, even some of the mini mealworms, um, anything that's really, really tiny food sources. Um, some more obscure stuff, people will do aphids or um, field sweepings, that kind of stuff to catch little tiny bugs. But um, anything smaller than an eighth of an inch, they'll eat. Wow. So I've wondered always, how do you keep track of if you have enough springtails or isopods in there and how so much small. the frogs are eating? Or and... do you just go, kind of, sorry, I'm totally cutting you off. I'm terrible. Keep going. <laughs> the... All frogs are feast and famine feeders, so what that means is that they'll eat and eat and eat until gluttony, um, because they're always nervous about when the, the food's going to be less uh, plentiful. Uh, with springtails, some, there are times where frogs will decimate that population, or maybe there's not um, as much mold or fungus in the terrarium, so those, those springtails are, are less in numbers but um you know there there tends to be a few stragglers that are always in that tank that are ready to to reproduce that way um, when it comes to feeding insects we uh tell people to stick to an every other day uh, method so you feed say it's monday you feed your animals um, on tuesday you look in the tank you want to see you want to see some bugs somewhere inside the tank um, if you go to feed on wednesday and you still see bugs in there you need you fed too much and back off so the, you can try to find this balance of uh, giving them enough food, um, but still allowing them to hunt for food. So they're not just sitting there just getting um, obese um, by sitting there eating because they're they're nervous about when the food's going to stop. Now, how do you see or what are the signs of an obese frog? Well, you will know. Um, they, they tend to get very round and very plump. Um, the whole key is that what you want to do is, is you want to get to a point where on, if you're feeding on Monday, on Wednesday, when you look in there, there just isn't anything left. They, they've picked everything off. Okay. And now, I guess, let's go into the grand scope of things. I mean, how many frogs do you guys produce a year? <laughs> um, a lot. Um, uh, multiple, multiple thousands of frogs. Um, the um, poison dart frogs um, have always been our uh, staple, but we also work with a lot of mass spawners. Um, suicide toads are a big thing for us right now. Um, we'll produce thousands of those. Um, so yeah, definitely into the thousands of, of animals that we would produce every year. And now do, as far as business-wise, I mean, are your bugs and the things that you produce, are they just as important, like financially as a business, as the frogs are? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, for, for Josh's frogs, um, animals, as many as we do produce here, are probably a, a single-digit percentage of our, our total business. So um, when you think about it, when we sell a frog, we have to sell all the stuff that you need to take care of that 
that animal, but also the ongoing food needs uh, for those animals across the uh, its entire life. And so, um, you know, in our, in our model, the the frog is is just the gateway to keeping a customer for on a long term basis. So, um, the other stuff, you know, the bugs, the the plants, the substrates, the the tanks, all that kind of stuff, um, ends up being a larger part of our business than the actual um, frogs do. Yeah, it's not fair. For, with frogs, there's a rabbit hole that you can go down. With snakes, it's like people give me a stir light tub, a newspaper, and a water bowl, and that's pretty much as far as people no, go. There's all yep. supplies that people <laughs> a sell. little bit, but yeah. What do you mean? People's whole business is reptile supplies. No, no, absolutely, but but I, it is different. It is different in the, in the frog industry than it than the, the reptile industry. There, there's a lot more stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, now, how, as far as running like an online business, like I ordered from Josh's Frogs and it was shipped like two hours later. And I was like, how the hell does that happen? So how do you, um, <laughs> basically from a, from a business standpoint, a lot of us work obviously alone. And uh -huh. how did you go from one to Zach to where you are now? Um, there was a point in Josh's Frog's history where I had our newborn infant on my chest and a baby, I call them baby Bjorns, but baby Bjorns. Um, and I was on the phone with a customer while I'm packing an order, doing everything myself. And it just got to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. And a point where I realized that there are probably people that could do the parts that I'm doing way better than I could do it. Um, so it wasn't uh, um, just Zach, but some of the other key hires have now become uh, department uh, directors here at Josh's Frogs, running large portions of uh, Josh's Frogs. So we grew by every time we could not, no longer um, manage to get out all the orders. We hired a new person, and as you know, when we ran out of uh, media and couldn't make enough media, we added another person, and when we, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't feed all the frogs before the lights turned off. Then we hired another person to do that, and um, you know we we got to the point where we put people in leadership positions that could say, hey, you know, in six months we're not going to be able to feed the frogs before the light goes out. So let's hire somebody now and prepare for that um, in the future. And so um, I've been really really lucky to have uh, people that are just really committed to this hobby and and our. Um, you know, and our reliance on on breeding poison dart frogs and other frogs um, that have been really passionate about that. And so been really lucky um, in those regards that that people have taken ownership um, for the parts of, of Josh's frogs. And, um, you know, it's, it's I like to joke all the time when somebody, you know, comes up with a new idea, like, yeah, I never in a million dreams dreamed that we'd be doing that <laughs> as Josh's frogs. And it's just really cool that the people are passionate about helping people connect with nature and and taking upon themselves to to use Josh's frogs uh, to do that um, in their own little ideas. Now, I don't know exactly where you are in Michigan, how it shakes out, but I mean, how many qualified reptile people are there? Like, where have you found people knowledgeable enough or do you teach them? Uh, we do a fair amount of uh, teaching, um, but um, we, you know, when you talk about like our, our bug industry, bug uh, department, like we have entomologists that'll come from states over to work um, at Josh's Frogs because they, they really feel like, you know, most entomology um, students, is, entomology is the study of bugs. Um, most of those students are, are taught on how to kill bugs. Like their, their whole job when they get out of school is to 
uh, figure out how to, to rid greenhouses of bugs. And so a lot of those guys or gals are really passionate about bugs. And, and this gives them an opportunity to say, hey, you know, instead of killing bugs, you want to breed some tarantulas or assassin bugs or or uh, work with millipedes. And um, so we've been able to pull people from states away um, in that regard. Um, we're in um, a very large population area. Um, most people don't realize this, but there's quite a few people in Michigan. Um, we're a pretty large population uh, type state. And we're in an area where we're halfway between Flint and Lansing. Um, there's easily hundreds, hundreds of thousands of of us awesome so i mean all my friends are kind of at the point where they're like struggling to get all their snake work done but they're also struggling to find like the one person who's dependable to do all the work week in week out and i don't know i think i feel like it's hard mostly to find help or it's like the breeder is either too snake focused or too business focused like what does it take to be successful as far as like the reptile knowledge or amphibian knowledge and the business and how do you balance it yeah uh, it really comes down to um uh, finding a good team like finding people that complement um that in my case that complemented me really well that were had different strengths and abilities than even i had um but also i think the biggest part that has helped us um, grow has been pe uniting around a common um, vision or mission for us. So, you know, we really feel like we're we're helping to shape the future of our hobby, um, when especially when it comes to frogs and our uh, reliance on captive breeding. That you know, that ten years ago the frog market looked different than it looks now, and that we had a part in that. And I think that drives people to be passionate about their job and seeing that as a, as part of the bigger picture of what we want to accomplish. And so, giving people that passion, so it's not hey, you know, you're just doing this menial job of feeding these frogs and taking these eggs out. But but to, to connect them with the, the greater mission of saying, hey, you're taking care of these frogs in a way that gives them a long, healthy life, but also allows other kids or other adults to experience what it's like to keep a frog in captivity and and uh, maybe turn their their phone off for a few minutes and actually look at something that's a little bit more alive um, than what they're currently doing. And so I think connecting people back to that uh, mission has been really successful uh, for us here and, and really what drives our growth. And how do you find a way to balance the, the welfare of the animals with business? And um, usually with snakes, we see it go one way, but maybe it's different with amphibians. Yep. Um, we, I, I think we've been really blessed and that um, the people that work here really care about those animals and care about uh, the long-term health of those animals and um, are set up in a way that, that we also, that we are just keeping each other accountable in that way, um, that anybody from our newest employee to somebody who's been here years um, can say, hey, things are not right um, in this area. We need to change these things. Um, and then that's well received. Um, one of our biggest things um, here has been uh, relying on integrity. Um, and so we have a, a policy that that from from my standpoint, from any of our directors down to the lowest employee, when we make a mistake, we let everybody know about it um, because we want to learn from those mistakes, but also we want to set up a, a system in, in order to keep those mistakes from happening. So, um, you know, it's not uncommon for, for me or for any of the people on our team to say, hey, we really messed up in this way. Um, we're not providing great care for our animals because I made this mistake, whether it was I forgot to miss these these animals um, this weekend or whatever it is. And so we've done a good job of creating a culture where people actually are really compassionate um, and really care about these animals because, you know, they 
that, that that's their 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 mission their their uh their purpose is to to really connect with those animals and and they're really taking ownership for that that they feel like hey the, these guys are are my responsibility they're they're my um not just job but they're they're my mission pretty inspiring <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This all sounds good. Um, okay, so there's a lot of questions from the chat that I want to catch up on. So our friend okay. Gustavo asked, um, "Do you carry a samurai Pac-Man frogs?" He says he's finding that they're hard to find lately. Yeah, the um, the Pac-Man industry is kind of. Uh... I don't know if the word's fluctuating right now. It's kind of, it's changing, I guess you could say. Um, it started with not very many Pac-Mans coming from overseas to now a point where there's just a lot of Pac-Man coming in um, um, Asia. And some of those uh, different morphs um, are, are um, I guess the best word is fluctuating. So there, there'll be a lot of Samurais and then there won't be a lot of Samurais. And um, I think the, that type of... Um, that part of the amphibian hobby just isn't really big. That whole morph type um, isn't as big as it is in some of the other industries. And so those tend to fluctuate quite a bit more on the amphibian side than they do um, in, when, when considering snakes or, or other um, reptiles and amphibians. Okay, so I guess you just have to kind of wait till I come back in fluctuation. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then our friend Brandon asked about cane toads he didn't actually ask a specific question he just said ask about cane toads <laughs> talk about those um there are quite a few large uh toads um that um are just really cool animals um so like some of those marine toads i mean you're talking dinner place uh size uh toads that that people will keep um they tend to fluctuate a little bit as far as popularity um they they need very very large enclosures um but do make really good uh captives some of the large toads um you know like our smooth-sided toads like the when we do school outreaches the kids just are blown away that a frog can be that large um and so uh they're they're really popular um the issue is that most people aren't willing to give you know that large of an enclosure i'm sure you guys see that in the snake industry that people want certain snakes but just aren't willing to give that kind of size and so or, or just aren't able to give that kind of size but that would be the, the where those cane toads would fit into it see the difference in the snake industry is they buy them and they actually just keep them in a smaller enclosure <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's that's a different story uh i see well you see cane toads and stuff when you're in florida and they're jumping around do you need what kind of size enclosure do you need for them for them yeah, any of those large ones, you're you're gonna need seventy five hundred gallon type uh, enclosures, uh, horse trough type stuff. Um, they just have a lot of space, and, and keeping them in a smaller space just really restricts their movement, which can cause all kinds of health issues from them hitting their head on the the sides of the enclosure to just not getting enough exercise or just getting really bored. And now the toxins that they expel from their skin is that an actual yeah. worry to to humans? Um, quite a few um, frogs will release some kind of uh, toxins. Um, they're they're mainly meant to be toxins that are ingested. So um, as long as you're not eating the the frogs, then um... <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's good ones to lick, right? Aren't there? Aren't there particular ones that people like to lick? Uh, yeah, the Colorado River toads. Um, I believe their state now is that you can't move them across state lines. They're considered a controlled substance. So. Uh, Colorado River toads, but I mean, 
Uh, this is an aside, but like, I don't know who these people are that find this stuff out. I'm sure there are frogs you lick and you die, and there are frogs that you lick and you get high. And who's I don't know, testing these? What village idiot you're standing out there to ask him to lick frogs and figure out which ones are okay and which ones aren't okay? Yeah, very sketchy either way. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, and so kind of different question. Um, but Ryan is super interested in going bioactive with his Superdorf retic, and he was asking if there's a certain isopods that you should use with specific temperature ranges. Yes, there are certain um, isopods that will do better at uh, different temperatures. Um, most of them tend to like it a little bit uh, cooler um, than what you're going to keep those uh, those retakes at. Um, and so making sure that you have some layer to that uh, substrate that you're putting in to get a few inches, it's amazing what a couple inches of substrate can change the temperature in a tank. And so um, really beefing up the, the, the depth of that uh, uh, enclosure can allow some space for those um, isopods to get a little bit lower where it's a little bit cooler. Awesome. So we didn't really get into... Oh, a whole question. Oh, go for it. Last one. <laughs> In um, the random fire questions from yes, the chat. Yes. This is why people like our show because we answer their questions. Well, our guests answer their questions. Um, Tom said, What are those psychedelic? No, that's, oh, that's what, what we were just, just talking, talking about. about. I'm stupid. Way Never to mind. go. Okay, go for it. Oh, wait. Wait. <laughs> wait. What is your favorite? Oh, they asked for non dark. Frog, non, oh, I can't talk. Non-dart frog display frog species. There you go. Um, for, see, I have I have uh, three young kids, so I have a, a five, seven, and ten year old. So like, as far as display type frogs, like, there's a lot of frogs that you can keep in a display that looks pretty awesome. But I'm really partial to frogs that are much more handleable. Uh, just because that's what my kids enjoy. So I really like the yellow spotted climbing toads. They they tend to um. Um, be okay with uh, quite a bit of handling, but also Amazon milk frogs. Uh, for whatever reason, they're they're very similar to uh, red-eyed tree frogs. They're just much more docile. So, um, you know, I have video of my three-year-old, when my daughter, when she was three years old, with it in her hand, just running around the house, and the frog just sits in her hand and just enjoys his ride. And so I, I'm partial to, to the frogs that you can interact a little bit more um, like that. But when it comes to setting up um, a frog enclosure, um, you know, they, most of them, um, when you're talking about big, large displays can be, um, most of them can, can fit in something that's really, really nice. And so it, it doesn't really de depend on which, uh, frog that you're using. You can, you can really doll up on uh, their enclosure, uh, pretty, pretty well. And, and so as far as which ones make the most, uh, best display, like I, I really am partial to the frogs that are a little bit more active, um, as opposed to the red eyes, um, uh, which you'll see as a, just a green blob all day long in the glass. <laughs> that moves a little bit um tends to be a, a better display animal that way now part of that display is obviously the plants so do you guys once again delving into something that i'll know so you're gonna have to walk us through it do you guys actually um get plants from nurseries or do you grow your own plants and do stemmings or whatever it's called yeah yep um we do a little bit of both. Um, so we work with um, some uh, greenhouses um, south of us uh, in Michigan. Um, there isn't a lot of uh, tropical plant uh, growers. 
So we'll work with uh, nurseries from the Carolinas, Tennessee, down to Florida to bring in what are called plugs, um, baby plants. Um, we also do a fair amount of propagating here. Um, we uh, own a greenhouse that's about 45 minutes away from here where most of our propagation happens. Uh, then those plants are brought here uh, to our facility here where I'm at um, and get shipped from here along with the other products that we uh, carry. So we're doing a little bit of uh, propagating. We're also doing some where we bring in plants and then grow them up here. And we're finishing construction on our tissue culturing lab. Um, so we'll be able to tissue culture uh, plants. So um, the short of that is you you start creating plants at a like a, a microscopic level where you're um, actually doing it in, in petri dishes. So we'll be um, moving that way as well. Um, the plant industry has just really grown, um, especially for us here at Josh's Frogs, um, in a way that, that most nurseries are just not able to, to help us out. And so um, we're gonna have to be much more reliant on, on ourselves, tissue culturing and then propagation as well um, to sustain the kind of growth that we're seeing. See, we have a, we have a local kind of pet plant store here that does dart frogs but they really make all their money on the plants do you see more people buying plants just as house plants or most of the people buying plants from you for vivariums yeah yeah the um it's really grown um I, I think it goes back to what i was saying before like you know that i josh's frogs has become so much more than frogs um right now we sell a lot of carnivorous plant or carnivorous plants that have nothing to do with frogs we sell succulents that definitely don't have anything to do with frogs. Um, a big part of the plants that we sell are, are for uh, fairy gardens. Um, so we sell quite a few for that. Um, All right. Do you may have to explain what a fairy garden is. What is that? Uh, all right. A fairy garden is um, you set up maybe um, a large terracotta pot where you'll put a bunch of plants and then get these little figurines like a mar uh, mushroom or a little fairy or maybe a little, uh, little mushroom house or some dwarfs. And you put these um, you know, these, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna call them knickknacks or, or whatever they are that you put in that and you kind of set up, people put, put them on their porches. Um, it's, it's now even like a, uh, birthday, uh, um, idea for uh, little girls. I'll do a uh, fairy garden kit. So the girls all come to your house for the birthday party and they'll all make their own little uh, fairy garden. So, um, they, they range in size from like a pot that you would do up to people that do these large displays in their backyards um, with all these little tiny plants. And so the tiny plants are made to look like uh, larger plants. So you'll have like these little tiny trees that, you know, in that landscape look like giant trees with their little berries and stuff like that. So that all sounds right. like something a... from the Shopkins CEO. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Along those same lines. Wow. wow, that's a world that didn't We're out the loop. I guess we don't. <laughs> when I teach kids, you'd think I know about that, but that is a different world. Wow. Yep. The, the more I've seen, like, there's the people who do, like, the scapes in, like, tiny little bottles and stuff like that. Like, what? Yeah. Yep. There's a, like, I, I think people just, like, really are drawn to really small things for some reason. But yeah, yeah. That is true. You know, there's those videos lately of the tiny cooking. That are really popular on YouTube. Have you seen that? Yeah, the little kitchen. You they make little, little foods. Yeah, like people like tiny these days. I don't know. It's so weird. Sorry, totally off topic. But you really have diversified. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, and it's been um, helpful for us um, to do that. Like our whole goal is to help people connect with nature. And we realize that the keeping frogs is just not for everybody, whether that's space, whether that's time. So we want to have stuff that allows people 
Maybe it's some of the uh, pet bugs that we have, assassin bugs or tarantulas. Maybe it's a fairy garden on your desk. Um, now we're getting into more and more aquatics. Um, so maybe it's a tiny fish tank um, in your living room. Anything that helps people connect with nature. It just we, we look at the people here and, and the, the impact that connecting with nature has made in our lives. And we, we just want to spread that. Whatever, whatever means needs to be. So where are you going? You mentioned aquatics. You've mentioned a little bit of reptiles. So where, where are you going in those spaces? Are you going to have fish and or breed fish? How deep, or actually... how deep are you going in there? <laughs> yes, um, we have quite a few people on staff here that are really passionate about that. Um, we've been uh, working for the last few years and uh, developing that. And so um, part of that's on the supply side. Um, but then aquatic plants, uh, the shrimp, um, the fish, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, eventually that'll be all under um, Josh's frogs too. Yep. Okay, so how big is your facility? Because like I'm thinking of all the things you're telling me you do, and I'm at like Walmart size in my head. So <laughs> um, right now our current our greenhouse is fourteen thousand square feet, and then Josh's Frogs uh, facility that we work out of here is thirty six thousand square feet. Um, and we're right now, um, if I gave you guys a tour and we walked through, you'd see like, oh man, you guys need more space now. And so um, we're in the process of uh, expanding as well too. Wow. And how many employees do you have? Um, we're just over 50. Wow. That's a lot of people. So it is a lot of people. How do you, um, coming from just in your bedroom, like, do you look back and be like, what have I done? <laughs> like, no. like, what the hell is going on? Like, it's so crazy. I, you know, that's the, the, the joke that we always have around here that like, hey, as I'm in my bedroom, you know, moving the boxes up against the wall so I can get my clothes out of the uh, dresser so I can go to bed, you know, that I had no idea that this is what it would turn into. No idea at all. Um, it was just one small step after one small step um, that brought to this. It wasn't like some grand plan that I had that, hey, if we just keep these boxes of cups in our bedroom and step around them, that eventually it'll turn into this. Just no idea that it would do that. And what's crazy to me is how like you've become an expert in so many different fields. And I think that's partly because of who you are and running the business, but also realizing how much goes into with frog, you know, like with snakes, you obviously become a, an expert in morphs and snakes and stuff, but he's an expert in all these different soils and all the different, yeah, you know, so right. Like we don't have, to, I mean, we can be an expert and all that, but we don't have to, he like has to, and he, he's not just like a novice in it. Like you're like an expert in all these different things. Well, that's the thing. Like, I'm not an expert in all this stuff. Um, I just have really good people here that are passionate about that kind of stuff that are experts in this. Like, I know nothing about fairy gardens. I could not tell you what plants look great in a you fairy garden. <laughs> I'm which mushroom should be in your fairy garden. I don't know any of that stuff. Like, it's totally like my daughter, my, my seven-year-old daughter would do a better job than I would do. And there are people here that are passionate about that and understand, you know, like when we're looking at mushrooms, to just give you an example, like there are hundreds of different mushrooms and different colors. And the people here are like, that's the one, that's the mushroom that people like. That's the one that looks the best. When I we talk about animals, bringing in animals and trying to figure out what will uh, sell. It's the the people here on staff that are doing the research that are like, hey, you know, based on the research, those frogs are not going to be very well in captivity or based on the research. Hey, here's how I think we need to 
um, to breed these. We need to heat them up. We need to, to get them really warm. They need 90 degrees plus in order to breed. So there's people here on staff that do all that. Um, I just see, uh, this is a good example of me not knowing that, that where we would be. Like I never, if I would have known that Josh's frogs would become what it is today, it would not be called Josh's frogs. <laughs> I don't have my name in it at all, um, but it's all all just by accident. So, like, when it comes to me being an expert, I'm I'm not the expert here by any stretch of the imagination. Really good people here that that know their stuff and are passionate about that. Um, and that's where I think, like, with the aquatic stuff, like I have kept very few fish tanks, but I've got a lot of guys here who that have a lot of experience in aquatics and really feel like they can take some of the stuff that we've learned with frogs, some of the stuff we've learned with tadpoles. Some of the stuff we've learned with plants and apply that to um, that industry. Um, we've really been driven by hobbyists um, getting involved in that. And I think that sets us apart from some of the other, um, what I'd say, larger national brands that, that they're not really run by hobbyists. So they're not connected to the people that are they're actually keeping uh, those animals. And so where we found success is in knowing knowing what hobbyists want because we're hobbyists. I have tanks at home. I know I know what products we need to develop because I'm sitting at home and I'm frustrated with the products that, are, that I'm using at that moment. And so um, I think that's where we found our success and that, that people are passionate about because they're, they're involved in it. And I think it's great that one, your employees are hobbyists, but also the amount of times you've talked about how much you work with other breeders, you know, like, and that's what keeps you connected to the people's work, you know, looking outside of your company and seeing what you can learn from people, you know, who just or do bringing this. experts in or right. Well. Or like you said, an entomologist. Surrounding yourself with, you know, smart people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's like in the snake industry. Um, but in the broader reptile industry and, and um, even in the amphibian um, hobby, there's, I would say that there is the minority that would see um, other breeders as competition. Um, like when I see the reptile industry as a whole, um, I think U.S. ARC threw around that 3% of the U.S. population keeps exotic animals. Like Josh's frogs and the, and the people that I work with are like, hey, what are the things that we can do to make that 6%? Like, cause when it's 6%, we don't need to worry about competition anymore. We can all live on an island somewhere. Um, you know, like if we can double, just get it to 6%. And so I think that might be a little bit different in some of the more specific, like maybe a ball python, you know, like the, the market is just saturated with a bunch of breeders, so they don't work together. Whereas I feel like the broader reptile industry says, okay, we could be a lot larger. Let's work together and figure out how to grow this hobby as opposed to trying to, who can sell the most red eye tree frogs or who can sell the most poison dart frogs. We're, we're really interested in growing the hobby. And so we've, we've been really lucky to find other people and that um, other business owners or other hobbyists or other breeders that are just really interested in, in growing the hobby and, and how we can work together to do that. Because that's all our goal is to, to not steal, steal uh, customers from somebody else. It's to, to grow the hobby. How do we, how do we make keeping frogs so easy that a soccer mom can figure out what she needs to buy and put the tank together for her eight-year-old son? That's, that's what we're about. And I'm not interested in competing with other people. I want, I want, um, I want us to, to all grow. And, and so um, in, in our experience, that's been the case that most people are, are in, in this industry are more than happy to, to work together to do that. Yeah. And it's, it is mostly in our case as well, because we don't work with, things that are more competitive. If you say the amount of people who keep Boland's pythons, they all talk to each other because they want to unlock the code. They don't care who does it. They yeah. want it for the future, for the animal, for the breeding and stuff like that. So it's not competition driven. It's, you know, the animal, which how it should be, I guess, is the animals first. 
Yeah, yeah. The last thing we want anybody in this hobby doing is cutting corners to compete with somebody else. I mean, that does nobody any good. Um, we, we really want to grow the hobby. And so um, the more we can do that, the more we can partner together, the better. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think even like some of our customers are surprised. They'll see us at a show and, you know, you'll have competitors all sitting around talking and joking around and, you know, this almost a shot. Like, hey, you guys talk to each other? You're like, yes, all the time we talk to each other. Now, there's... Obviously, as such a large company, like you said, there are a bunch of them that get far from what the hobbyists themselves and like, obviously, you guys still go to shows. Obviously, you guys, you're still on our podcast right now, which I mean, we're not some huge uh, place for you to be. But it's like, uh, what are some of the things that you do to stay involved? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to like our show schedule, we do not have a show team that does our shows. We like to send people from all over um, the company. So for instance, for Tinley Park, we'll have 10 people um, from our company that'll be heading to the show. We have people from shipping that'll be vending. We have animals, uh, people from bugs and plants and people from customer service. So we really like to take all of our employees, get them interacting with people that are actually using our products. I think it just allows them to to see the bigger picture of the specific job that they're doing and how that impacts a hobby and how that impacts people outside of our company. And so we've used shows to to get people to be interested in that. We also um, we have um, a policy that um, any supplies or um, feeders that you that uh, any employees need is all done at, at cost. So whatever it costs Josh's frogs is what it's going to cost you uh, to get. Um, we also give uh, away quite a few animals to employees to get them involved in that because we want, um, you know, if you're a customer service agent and just came to Josh's frogs because you're into customer service, we want you to keep some animals because we want you to be connected uh, and be passionate about what we're passionate about. So um, I'm always surprised that the the people that come in and I think I don't know if that person's ever going to be an animal person, and then I find out that. Their living room is overtaken with, you know, chameleons and frogs and all this kind of stuff. It's it's just kind of interesting. I think, you know, what we're trying trying to breed is that people um, that that come into Josh's frogs, they they should be involved in the stuff that we're involved in and find, um, you know, connect with that that mission. Well, you have just talked so amazing about your uh, work or employee experience. We have some people who are interested. <laughs> 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 and possibly working. No, are you hiring? <laughs> and like, what kind of experience do you need? <laughs> um, well, the, we have quite a few uh, different departments that are um, hiring. Um, right now, we're hiring in customer service. Um, we need another agent as we gear up for uh, winter. Um, we're hiring in the plant department. Um, we're hiring in shipping. Um, and, uh, we just finished hiring in, um, insects, uh, but there will be some animal hires that'll be soon. Um, as far as experience, um, in the animal areas, we really like people that have had experience keeping, um, some animals before, um, when it comes to the other areas, uh, plants, people that just are passionate about plants. Um, but when it comes to customer service, um, shipping, um, any of those types of uh, uh, jobs, you know, the the experience isn't isn't so necessary as as your willingness to be part of the culture that we're building here, and so that's just more important that way. Um, if I don't know how if, if you guys have show notes or whatever, I could show a link to our uh, our uh, application and and whatnot, so people can apply if they're interested. Yeah, we'll put it down in the description. Yeah, just message it to Joe. And All right, I can do that. I can do that. 
Cool. Um, different area, but Evan asked, do you guys sell Mist King systems? Yes, uh, we do. Um, we carry uh, Mist King systems, and we also carry the Exoterra Monsoon, and then um, we do the um, um, Zoomed uh, version as well. So we do carry all of those. Um, and the cool thing is um, we have people... Um, on staff that um, have set up those systems before. I know sometimes there's a little bit of apprehension about like, hey, how complicated is this? Um, you know, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is, is having um, a team of people that have experience using those products, uh, fielding questions and answering phone calls. And so, um, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a little bit of apprehension that it seems really difficult to set up. It really is not that difficult to set up, um, but, but we can hold your hand through that as well too. Awesome. I felt like you had a question. No, I was just going to tell you that that's all the chat questions. Okay, we did it. Oh, wait, no, I lied. Sorry. <laughs> um, God, it's all over the place. But the statistic you said about 3% of the population keeps exotic animals. Brandon wants to know if you know anything more about that number of, like, I doubt you know this, but, like, birds or exotic mammals. Um, From... I'd have to go back and look, but I was under the impression that that did not include those, that it was simply what they were trying to do is say, hey, this is how many people are keeping exotic reptiles and amphibians. Damn, yeah. 3%. That's, yeah, that's crazy that 97% of the U.S. population does not keep exotic animals. Like, it could very easily be 10%, and you're talking about three times our industry? That's insane. Right? You oh. think the, the amount of people that, I believe it's something like... Uh, most of the population lives within cities and yep. therefore live in apartments and therefore it's so much easier to have a dog or to have an exotic animal, a reptile, amphibian yep. than it is to have a dog. I yep. just, what, I guess it's the stigma and stuff that's stopping people from keeping these animals or is it the ease of keeping or they just don't know how to keep it, they don't know where to start. You know, I, I think I think you're right. I think those two things are at play. I really think like the stigma is a lot smaller than what we actually realize. Like I'm well, I'm always shocked at when I we do school presentations. A lot of times some of the parents will join in and like how few people are actually fearful of some of the what we would consider the most scariest of the exotic animals, large snakes or tarantulas. There isn't that much fear that we're seeing when we're going out into the public. I think the second part of that is is much more the case that the people feel a little bit apprehensive, like, how do I take care of a snake? I don't know what to do. Like, and we just need to do a better job as an industry of making it simple for people and making it easy for people. And is that kind of what you aim to do with the diversity and things that you offer through Josh's Frogs? Yeah, we, um, it, it was a, it was a conscious decision early on in our company. Um, where we were small enough where, and there's been a few times in, where, in our history where it's been the case of like, hey, we're small and fragile. I don't know what our future looks like and we need to define what that future looks like. And we were making the decision on whether we were gonna invest in education uh, for, for our customer base because um, we sent out an email to um, a couple of large national pet store type chains um, asking simple questions to just figure out where they were on customer service. And I'll never forget, we, we sent out uh, an email to a bunch of them saying, hey, I have a, a leopard gecko that I just bought. What size crickets should I, should I get for my leopard gecko? And none of them could answer the question. Like the people answering their, their, their email tickets did not know enough about leopard geckos to even say what size crickets you should. And we made a decision at that time, like, hey, 
it's going to cost us a lot more money um, to, to staff our phone with people who understand a broad range of reptiles and amphibians, to have actual phone support for questions like that. It's going to cost us a lot of money, but that's going to be our differentiator. But that's also going to be the mission that we have. Like, hey, we want to make keeping reptiles and amphibians easy for people, and we're going to live and die by that. Like, if that that business model is not effective, then Josh's Frogs is going to go out of business, but we're going to go out of business trying to do the mission that we set out to do and, and making it easy for people to connect with nature. And um, luckily, for whatever reason, that was a good business decision because it is allowing us to grow in a way that um, those places are not growing. And so um, so by chance, it, it actually worked out, but um, you know, something that we, we live and die by. We want people, we want people to, to be equipped in order to take care of those animals. And I think it you know, and selfishly, it's in our best interest. The longer those animals live, the better it is for us. And, and you know, it's nice that our that our um, business needs and the customers' experience line up. That the the more successful they are, the more successful we'll be. I think it's so important because we spend so much of our time on social media. People pretty much reach out to you about animals that they got from elsewhere that they can't basically ask the person what to do with. And it's so yep. frustrating. And it's such, like, why would you waste your time in the hobby? I understand why it happens in big box stores because there's just only, I yep. guess, so much what you can do with a minimum wage employee. Right. But, like, how do you, as you get bigger, how do you make sure that that, is that just a a side effect of size? Yeah. Um. We... We have had uh, many a meeting about this. Whether you know, it's, is it in our best interest to be the the answer answer people for all types of uh, reptile and amphibian questions? And we've really landed on the fact that, like, if our mission is really about increasing our our uh, industry, it's about doing what's right by our industry. It's about increasing um, the success that people have. That I that I think, even though it doesn't make business sense to answer a question about an animal that somebody else bought somewhere it is still fulfilling the mission that we set out to do. And so um, again, it comes back, you know, we're going to live and die by that. Like if, if it's, if it's a horrible business decision, then then we'll go out of business, but we'll be doing it in a way that, that, that lines up with our mission of, of increasing this, uh, this hobby. And so um, we found that it's been very successful and that we find out that once people um, feel confident enough that, Hey, you know, the person I talked to at Josh's frogs understood what my leopard gecko needed. Now I can ask them about these other questions and, and, and figure out some other ways in, in order to take care, better care of that animal or move, um, add to their hobby and, and get another animal that we've seen some, um, some success that way. But, um, you know, we, we've definitely been to the point where we've talked like his, that is that the best use of our, our, of our resources to be answering questions. And, um, uh, you know, we're just really committed to our hobby and, and in doing that. So we can just refer people to him. That's right. <laughs> I mean, basically, you mean, when someone starts asking us a million questions yeah, we don't want to answer, we just pass them on 1-800 over. 1-800-Josh's frogs. I think a lot of focus is spent on, especially with being successful in the hobby, a lot of people say, you know, how do you get rich in reptiles? Or I guess it probably applies to amphibians to it's to start with two million dollars so that you can make a million dollars you know what i mean like so i mean obviously you're not someone who started off with a lot of money Mm -hmm. so how can just a normal person go and in today's environment be the josh's frogs of 2030 right um i 
did not take a penny out of Josh's frogs for five years. So I worked pro bono for five years. Every time I sold um, a fruit fly culture, I bought more fruit fly culturing material. And every time I sold a light bulb, I bought two more light bulbs to put on our shelf. Um, so it's really about being in a place in your life that you can do that in. Um, I was lucky enough um, that I could, I was working another job. My wife was as well and turn this hobby into just a way to pay for itself um so that's that's the easiest way to do it the other way to do it is to do something different than anybody else is doing it in a way that um pushes people to um to connect with nature using whatever whatever easy method that you've uh created is to stumble upon something like that would be um the only way you're going to do it it's um I think there's no difference between the reptile industry and any other industry. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people trying and, and failing for various reasons. Uh, um, you know, being an entrepreneur is about, um, is about working hard, but it's also a lot about luck. And now how do you feel that you got lucky? Cause it seems like you, well, you were into the dart frogs, which the bioactive vivarium thing really took off in this time. But also, you knew that you were going to have to be an online retailer, all this stuff. I mean, it seems like there was more than luck involved. Or what would you get lucky on? <laughs> I, I guess if you're asking me to split, like, how much of it do I think was luck and how much of it do I think was something unique to uh, me, I'd probably say something like 90% luck, 10% luck. Well, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I mean, um, you know, I think like every business, I think a lot of people uh, will will say, you know, um, you know, that it looks like an overnight success, but it's been 14 years. Um, in those 14 years, there were plenty of times where I thought, well, this is the end. This is where it all ends. This is where it all comes crashing down. Um, for whatever reason, you know, whether it was a, um, the team, you know, digging their heels in and uh, figuring stuff out, um, whether it was a little bit of luck um, or whether, you know, situations outside of us uh, changed um, that we were able to, to continue to do what we're um, doing. And so, um, yeah, it really does come down to um, a lot of luck. But um, I, I guess I'll just go back to, um, you know, I think the, the thing that has um, really brought us the most success was uni unifying under the same mission and, and being willing to live and die by that mission. And I think that's motivated people to, to work harder than they would ever work for anybody else, um, to put up with more than they would probably ever put up with anywhere else um, because they believe in that uh, mission and, and want to see that. Uh, they, they feel like they're making a difference in our hobby and they want to continue to make that difference in our hobby, um, you know, as, as what made us successful now do do you have a particular time because i mean just for us we've had times in probably the last two years we probably had a lot of times where we were like all right yeah is this really gonna work are we really gonna keep on doing what we're doing is there any particular time that that happened to you and you came up on that wall yeah uh yeah there's there's tons of those um uh i can remember I can remember um, being to the point where like, hey, if we don't have a good weekend, I'm not going to make payroll on Monday. Like it, it just has to, it, we just have to have a good weekend this weekend. Um, we moved out of my house into um, a facility um, here in Owasso. That was a huge like, hey, you know, some stuff has to really go well or we're going under um, to the, when we moved from that facility over to our current facility um, and realizing, like I can remember, signing the lease on our, our uh, um, 
the building here and realizing that like if josh's frogs does not make it they will come and take my house they'll take everything i own um if this does not work and so um you know and and being able um at josh's frogs we do an open book policy so all of our financial stuff is available to all employees um, so they can see how much I make, they can see how much profit we had, how much revenue we had, they can see all that. Um, and that's really, I think that's helped us to say, okay, we're taking a leap of faith to move into this larger building because we feel like this building will help us um, fulfill our mission um, that we want to do in a, in a bigger way. Um, and, you know, we're going to have to work hard and we're going to have to figure stuff out in order to make this work. And, and you know, it's, it's been successful that way. What kind of advantage does it give you to have every employee know what you're making, what you're doing? Oh, no. Wait, give me one second. You're muted for some reason. What did I do? Making a bunch of shit. <laughs> Cancel. Okay. Now you're on. Our- now I'm on. So say your question again. So what kind of advantage does it give you to let everyone know each other's salary and your salary? Um, I, th- I think that it, uh, I think it really pushes the point that like, that we're all committed to this mission. Um, I think that it, it rallies us around that instead of, um, a, a relationship where it's Josh against the employees. Like, I feel like a lot of the places that I worked, um, a lot of the places that my friends worked, it's like work is about two sides. It's about leadership and the employees and like who can one up one another and who can, who can, um, you know, who can do the least amount of work or who can benefit the most from that relationship. And I really just wanted our relationship, my relationship with um, the people that report to me and um, the relationship among the people to be one about fulfilling the mission that we um, have and, and working together for that. Um, and that, um, the way in which we do that is that if we're successful, all of us are going to be successful, that we're we're all together on one team. And so I've said it multiple times, like if it ever comes to a point where it's Josh versus the employees, like I'm done, like I don't, I don't want to be in that, that environment. I want to I want to be in an environment where we're working together as a team and we're building Josh's frogs. And so I think it goes back to what I said, like if I had any idea that we'd be right here, it would not be named Josh's frogs. That was the biggest mistake of my life. I would, I would rather not have my name on the company and I'd rather have it be about something that we're trying to accomplish um, as a as a team as opposed to something that I'm specifically trying to accomplish myself. Well, if it helps, we're Port City Pythons and we don't have any pythons and we get asked for pythons constantly. I breed <laughs> corn snakes. <laughs> so we're not exactly uh, the best name choosers either. Yeah, we uh, we've gone back and forth on um on on our name and whether, um, you know, as we expanded to say aquatics and as we expanded into um, plants, if, if we would keep the name Josh's Frogs, but I just feel like we put a lot of work behind that name and, um, you know, and that, that people have like an expectation of what that uh, means. And so, so we, right now, um, <laughs> the question has always been like, okay, when we're, we're doing dog and cat stuff, is it still going to be Josh's Frogs? And I'm always like, yep, it'll just always be Josh's Frogs or whatever we're doing. Yeah. I think at this point you got to dig your heels in. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, you guys, though, are very prevalent on things like social media or especially you obviously you have a YouTube channel going on. Like, do you have someone who takes care of all that for you? And basically, a lot of people neglect that in our hobby, I feel. And do you think that that is to your advantage? Yeah. Um, 
I think part of it is a uniqueness to our size that we have um, the resources to do that. Like, I mean, I think it goes back to like what you're you're asking about, like a one man guy trying to do a, a business. Like, I would suck at social media. I'm I'm way too old. I don't understand what's current. Like, I would I would suck at that type. Hey, stuff. you know, fairy gardens. You're pretty. You're I know. Yeah, I got that off on you guys. Um, we have a marketing team. Um, it is uh, four people. Um, we um we've just developed that team over the past couple of years um we relied very heavily on word of mouth um but you know looking back at our our mission to help as many people connect with nature as possible um we really felt like you know that we needed to put our industry um, in good light and, and whether that means communicating how easy it is to take care of stuff but or what's available to keep in our hobby um that that was going to be uh something that we were going to um, invest time in. And so um, it's been really cool. Um, that team um, is really, uh, we like to say, making it up as they go along, but just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work um, and what resonates with uh, customers. And, um, you know, it, it's a tough boat for them to be in, trying to be knowledgeable about everything that we uh, work with. Um, but ha- ha- they've managed it in a really, uh, cool way. And I think, um, you know, a lot of our recent success uh, would be tied to, to the work that they're doing. Um, yeah. We're just really proud of that team. I think I feel like at least when we do social media, it ends up being we do so much customer service through social media. So like that line for us, I mean, is just so blurred. It's not even, you know, I'm answering things all night and day. So do you have something that forwards it to your uh, customer service or does your social media team feel that stuff? Great question. Um, All of our... um communication, no matter how somebody communicates with us, all comes into a centralized location. So if you comment on a YouTube channel, if you send us a Facebook messenger, if you email us, if you respond, if you just hit reply to one of the emails that we send out to you, it all gets funneled to one area. Um, And then that team fields those questions and then directs those questions to other people here on staff based on what they're um, asking. So it goes back to like um, we if you ever get an email from a company you'll always have a do not reply type email like I feel like you know we made a decision like every email that we send out you can just reply to us and ask us a question like we just want to make it super easy for so all that stuff comes into one system that then we funnel it to you know um, to whoever is the best uh, person to answer those questions yeah that's super cool technology yeah yeah it is is. (laughs) so what do you or what's something that maybe you guys do as far as the business side that you think that people, reptile breeders or people in the hobby in general can take precedence of and kind of because we have too much illegitimacy, I want to say, in our hobby. Like what's something little steps that someone could take to be more legitimate and kind of build more of a business rather than a hobby? Yeah. Um- you know, in our our side, like I think there's this uh, in our hobby. There's, and I think in probably true in a lot of businesses. There's this fear of like, hey, what are all the things that I should be doing that I'm not doing from like a legal uh, standpoint, um, and trying to figure out like how do you navigate all that stuff. We've been uh, pretty open. Um, a good example would be um, like shipping bugs and the USDA permits that are required for that. Like, there's a lot of 
illegal bugs shipping around um, the country right now. And so we're working with some other um, vendors to, to help them make the connections that they may, need to make to, in order to get those permits in line. And I think there's this uh, like almost uh, stigma where, where people that start up are new are a little bit scared about asking some of those questions, like what are the permits that I need or what, what is the sales tax license? Do I need that if I do a, a show? I think we as a hobby just need to do a better job of, of, of educating people on, on what's required and, and showing them how easy it is to, to accomplish some of those stuff. And so that's something that we talked about doing. We've um, really expanded wholesale quite a bit um, and, and made some good connections with some local pet stores and, and helping them to figure out um, those kind of things that um, seem like out there and try to figure out what exactly you have to do. And it seems so foreign and, and helping people um, do that. So I think there's that side of it, but then there's also the business aspect of it um, that like running a reptile business is the same as running any other business. Um, you know, 99% of the people cannot do it. It's, it's a, it's a very unique person that can um, do that. Um, and I think like in most industries, like you would have, like, say we're all showing, uh, selling insurance, like we would all get together and talk about what are the best ways to sell insurance. And there isn't as much of that happening in the reptile industry as, as needs to happen. And so I think we just need to grow as a, as a hobby in that way, uh, to help each other out. Um, two questions. One, do you still keep any um, animals personally at home? Yep. Um, yes, I have um, an English uh, bulldog. Um, he comes to work or she comes to work with me and then um, goes home with me. Um, as far as exotic animals, I have a blue tongue skink, a couple of crested geckos, excuse me, um, white tree frogs, um, I have a bunch of dubia roaches and I have a bunch of, uh, leopard geckos. I have a, a rack of leopard, leopard geckos. So all stuff that oh, and I have a couple of tortoises. I have a sulcata and a rabbit, but so all stuff that my kids enjoy and then I enjoy and, um, stuff that we can interact with. So I do not have any poison dart frogs at home anymore. Uh, it's been about four years since I've got poison dart frogs at home. I, I figured the wife would make you get rid of the dubias the first time you got a building. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, with the dubia roaches, um, I, uh, I told her they were, they were beetles, not roaches, um, until she warmed up to that. And then I was like, okay, these are actually roaches, they're not beetles. So don't um, ever the try that with me. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing about, uh, dubias is they, there is, unless you're living in Florida, there literally is no infestation risk. They need super high humidity, a lot of food. Um, and especially for me being in Michigan, all my, um, uh, herbs are kept in the basement and that basement floor is just too cold. So any of that get out, just literally stop moving on the basement floor. It's just too cold for them, um, on the floor. So, um, I like that. There are other, other, um, bugs that would, uh, that would, uh, take up more residence in your house, but doobie roaches aren't one of them. For sure. And you mentioned it a little bit, but do the kids, uh, do they have the bug or do, do all of them have it or just a couple or one or, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, my oldest, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a good salesman at all. Like that's not my, I get on some stuff. <laughs> Let me speak about that. But I, my oldest son is like the, like the, you know, like taking wrestling guys to school and selling them to his buddies and stuff like that. Like he's the perfect salesman, but is not interested in animals very much at all. My daughter is like the animal whisperer. She loves animals. Um, and the same with my youngest. Um, he's very much interested in um, animals. So I definitely see the younger two getting involved um, in our industry. 
whether my oldest does, probably not. It's not not his thing. He'd, he'd much rather uh, mess with wrestling guys and uh, YouTube videos. So I guess there's that. Like eventually, I'm sure he'll he'll be getting the the bug for working with us on some of our YouTube videos. That's his thing. Is that something that you want to happen? Do you want it to be a business that you're able to pass down to your kids? Um, I'm I'm not tied to that. Um, you know, like I I would love the opportunity to work alongside my kids. I think that would be really cool. Um, but the idea of like handing the business down to my kids, no, it's not something that probably will happen. But I'm sure it's nice to have, uh, they always have a summer job, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they start work at seven years old. So uh, (laughs) they work, they work in the uh, making department. Uh, so they, uh, do bagging leaves, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, they, they get the, uh, the, the get 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 dirty and then get working at uh josh's rock so no special treatment they they get the the dirtiest of dirtiest jobs what they get <laughs> that's awesome um i'm not sure if you stated this earlier and it was a question in the chat and one i had in my brain do you do any like educational outreach things with schools or anything like that yeah, um, a lot of uh, our staff are really excited and passionate about that kind of stuff. And we feel like the more opportunities we can get to expose uh, young children to exotic animals is, is in our best interest as a, as a hobby. So um, we do a fair amount of those um, for school groups, Boy Scouts uh, groups, those kind of things. Um, for my kids, I'll at the end of the year, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, if you have the Willard kids, then uh, their dad comes in the last uh, day of school and does a whole presentation. So I'll bring a bunch of people here from our uh, facility. We'll bring a bunch of animals in and and uh, do some stuff in the library with the kids. Uh, we do uh, that. And then we also do um, some educational larger events uh, to the like the reptile experience there in uh, Chicago and um, whatnot. We're, um, and then working with uh, schools, we do um, there's a website called Donors Choose where teachers can. Um, come up with a project, and then we help uh, spread the word so that those projects get funded um, so that they can keep exotic animals in the classroom, um, and then working with the local schools here uh, to make sure that they, they get the stuff that they um, need to, to in order to to um, share that kind of stuff with uh, the children. So um, we're very much involved in that. That's cool. I've never heard yeah. of companies doing that for teachers, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why aren't we doing that with your school? That's right. They need they need some snakes. Um, Montessori doesn't believe in snakes. No, no, opposite. Quite the opposite. That's not what I was gonna say. Yeah. One, we, this is gonna sound terrible. We don't need the donors juice. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, two, right. my kids are too crazy for a snake to be in the class. They put it in their mouth. And um, stuff. We have two year olds, and we're not ready. We're not ready for a class class pet quite at the moment. A dart frog would be great. That would go down easy. There you go. There you go. It would. Be- yeah, my wife. A secu- My wife's a third grade teacher, okay. so she keeps uh, she keeps poison dart frogs every few years, and then she alternates that with a tortoise or whatever else that she wants to keep. So um, she's on turtles as well, but she does a lot of poison dart frogs. Now, was that always meant to be as far as like you kept your professional life separate? Because obviously the obvious thing would be like she'd be like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job and work with you. Has that been something that you guys have avoided or is it something you talked about? um we she she is very passionate um about teaching like that like she sees it more as like her calling as opposed to a job so she's always been very very involved in that um 
it's it's funny. I always joke with her that you know during the summer she should come in and uh, work here, and she says even when the kids are old enough, she's she has no interest in coming and hanging out with me during the day. Wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I can't even, I don't know. I've always assumed that I'm going to eventually, once our business gets bigger, I'll eventually stop teaching. I just, I don't know how I'd be able to stay out of it, but that may just be a personal thing. <laughs> she also doesn't like to, uh, she likes to do her own thing. You like the entrepreneurial yep. thing. Yeah. Yep. 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 Very much so. Yeah. It's definitely a personality thing. Like you have to have the right personality in order to do that. Um, and I really, I mean, I really feel like it, it's a calling thing. Like if you have the opportunity to do a vocation where you feel like you're called to do it, like there's nothing better in life than that. Um, and, you know, my wife's at a point right now where, where she feels like, man, I was, I was meant to be here in this classroom. And so she's not willing to give that up for anything. Well, really, I'm like, hey, girl, we're going to need some health insurance. Yeah, he wants so. me to keep my job for health insurance. <laughs> Uh, that's always a nice thing. Those teachers have nice benefits. Because <laughs> it's hard with the whole snake thing. I mean, yeah. it's not the best. But, so yeah, no 401k. Sense. No, no, <laughs> nothing like that. <laughs> so I guess now that we're kind of winding down, we're getting low on time. Um, what do you see as the future of your business, of the hobby, and In Josh's frogs, of course? And what? In 10 years. Oh, 10 years. You're giving them an actual time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to imagine what that's going to be like. Um, I think it'll involve um, a lot more um, people and a lot more um, departments or avenues. Like, I, I really feel like fish is going to be an opportunity for us. I feel like there are other um, areas that are going to be huge for us. Um, the plant department here is really growing. Um, they're chomping at the bit to do um, some other stuff, even outside the reptile amphibian industry. So I think there's more of that. Um, I just feel like we're, we're going to spread out in a way that allows us to say that, like, hey, if you are any person in any life situation, we have some way for you to connect with nature, um, whether that's you know, something that you can keep on a desk to something you can keep in your backyard, that that's what we're going to be all about and, and trying to figure out, you know, how can we run the gamut of everything that anybody could actually use to, uh, in order to connect with nature and, and fulfilling those uh, for our customers. I think it's, it's going to be what the future brings. And because that's what I think the future is going to be like, it's hard for me to predict what that actually looks like because uh, I think of all the ideas that are here now that I did not dream up 14 years ago, and it's hard for me to, to, to imagine what uh, 10 years will be like. Um, from now we do know um, part of our plan is to um, open up a distribution on the west side of the country uh, right now in Michigan you know California is pretty far and so um, we're realizing that hey we need we need to, to spread out that way um, in order to um, keep down on shipping costs but um, beyond that um, I don't know what the future holds um, we're, we're pretty excited about um, heading out west um, and, and expanding some of the animals that we breed um, and that's in the next three years but beyond that uh, it's hard for me to imagine awesome well i there, there's one question that i forgot i i know that you have some type of uh you're always kind of coming up with new whether it's soils or things in the works what do we what do you expect to have available in the near future from josh's frogs new stuff that kind of you guys are developing right now um, the, we've really, um, 
bit onto the bioactive uh, type stuff that's uh, coming out now. So we um, um, released um, bio bedding uh, this last uh, year for crested geckos or other tropical lizards. Um, we're working on uh, desert type bioactive stuff, um, but then also working on the uh, the bugs that are going to be involved in that type of uh, bioactive system. And then, you know, like I alluded to at the beginning, even looking at the microscopic level, what does what are the things that we need to add to that sterile soil in order to make it a more natural uh, environment so that uh, that that life cycle can happen right there inside the tank and so those are the things that are really on the docket now um, doing a lot of testing um, we do um, reptiles has been um, an area in which we've grown in the last uh, couple of years and so um, we have the animals now here on site that we can actually test that kind of stuff with and do some long-term testing uh, with and so um, working with the USDA to to get the proper permits to work with some of these other um, bugs that we think will will do really well in some of these um, or arid type uh, enclosures where it's a little bit drier uh, to turn those into bioactive um, environments. So that's on the, the, the more near term. So you alluded at it, but is it illegal to ship springtails and isopods through states or across state lines? Um, every bug is totally different. Um, you uh, not not only have to apply for federal permits, but you have to do it on a state-by-state -state basis. So it's it's quite a bit of um, copy Thing, um, but it's something that's uh, very doable, and uh, um, the USDA is working on simplifying that system. But right now, it's it's a little, little outdated. Do you have to get permitted every shipment, or it's one thing that you have and you can ship? It's one thing that you have that expires every three years. Okay. So, so I send a list of bugs to the state of New York. Say I want to ship all these, and New York, the New York USDA says, oh, these ten are okay, but these three are not. They send it back to us and we say, hey, you should really look again at those three species <laughs> because we think that they'll not infest New York. And um, they require that we, um, with, that we include the permits with every shipment. So when you order from us, we send you an email that's got a link to all the permits. So we send you all 50 states. So you have to scroll through all 50 to find your state, but it does uh, meet the requirements for that. And then um, on a lot of our bugs, they require us um, to add a pamphlet of um, on how to dispose of those bugs. And we worked with the USDA to say, hey, can we make this form a little bit more user-friendly and actually make sense? And they said, yes. So we have our infamous don't be a Richard uh, form that, that outlines how not to be um, a Richard and just let your bugs out when you're done with them. So. Um, so those are the requirements on the permits. I went to this a little bit too Shut up. Ago. I was about to say I'm mad how long it took me to get that. <laughs> but yeah, you weren't lying. That whole process sounds very outdated. I mean, having to send things back and forth. Right. And just as an aside, the most annoying part about this whole system is that the password for the USDA system expires every 90 days, and you cannot use the password that you used the last 25 times. Wow, because it's so secure because someone's going to break in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I don't know what they would do if they even broke in. Like, what are they going to do? I don't know. It's <laughs> terrible. Wow. Okay, cool. I have more questions about that that we don't have time for. But um, our last question, I can't even say we always ask our guests, but we've lately been asking when our guests. When we remember. We'll when we remember. This. is totally different and has nothing to do with reptiles, but or amphibians, but what is the strangest food you've ever eaten? Um, 
I've had goat head soup in Jamaica. Okay. That's yeah, pretty, pretty up there. Good. Did you like it? Um, you know, like if you would have told me it was beef, I wouldn't have known the difference. Okay. I feel like that's true with a lot of things. Like it just tastes like yeah. chicken or tastes like yep, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. So I mean if someone's listening to this, they know the answer to this question, but if someone wants to reach out to you, how can they get in contact with you? Um, email is my favorite uh, mode of communication, and it's just josh at joshesfrogs.com. Cool. And awesome. obviously your website and Instagram, yep. Facebook. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Josh's Frogs, everything. We're on Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, Facebook, all of us. Awesome. Okay, and you great. can find us at portcitypythons.com, portcitypythons Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Besides Pinterest, you got us on that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, of course, you're listening to the podcast right now. What else is there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I wanted to talk about the, the Paul podcast for a second, but I didn't know we were going to get so much flack for that. And uh, if you listen this far in this podcast... Please listen to that one. To the previous one before, before you, you <laughs> give us hate for before it. Before you give us a negative comments for having him on because he was a cool dude. And uh, yeah. Okay. So thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. <laughs>